You're listening to Nick Luck Daily. This edition is brought to you by Fitzdares, by the Racehorse Owners Association, and by Thoroughbred Racing Commentaries Global Rankings. Good morning, welcome to the show. It's Monday, December the 13th. It's a December the 13th-ish sort of day here in TW11. Cool, dry and grey. Now yesterday on my Luck on Sunday programme on Racing TV and on the Racing Debate on Sky Sports Racing, representatives of the British Horse Racing Authority and the PJA, the Professional Jockeys Association, sought to douse the flames, the intense flames that burned in the aftermath of the Robbie Dunn hearing on Thursday. Lydia Hislop is with me this morning. Uh, Lydia, do we sense a spirit of, of conciliation now? It was really welcome, I think. Um, it was particularly the PJA that had to um, make quite a climb down from their, I think, hasty press release that they put out on Thursday night. I think on reflection that they um, probably agree with that. Um, and immediately after the hearing concluded last Thursday, the BHA were trying to strike a conciliatory tone. Um, but at, those point, at that point, the two organisations were very, very far apart, I think. Are you encouraged by the speed with which this sort of conciliation has, has taken place insofar as is it a question of the flame was burning so hard that it's not burnt itself out, but it's, it's gone to embers quite quickly? Yes, I suppose I suppose I, I suppose I am. Um, I mean, what was striking over the last the final 48 hours of the case watching it um, via Zoom as other members of the press were was you, you were thinking, well, how is the industry going to come together and mend following that and, and hoping that that, that, that that would happen? Um, it is welcome that the PJA, as of Sunday morning, accepted that Bryony Frost was bullied, that they accept the validity of the discipline panel and its decision. I mean, clearly there is still recourse for Robbie Dunn to appeal. Um, as uh, Pete Scargill said on Luck on Sunday, um, we don't yet know on what basis that would be. You wonder whether that might be more focused on the uh, length of the penalty rather than anything else. But, we, you know, we wait to hear that. And um, this will, he'll have seven days, he and his advisors will have seven days to decide whether that is what he wants to do once the panel have released their reasons and clearly there will be another flurry of, of interest in this case when the panel does um, release its reasons which um, you might hope would be this week but there's no particular time scale on it. I think that the PJA have got some areas still for reflection. I, th I think it would have been helpful um, for the PJA to uh, translate what uh, the context and provide the full sentence of what BHA Council said in their adversarial setting of summing up and having to counter the Roderick Moore argument, which sought to normalise Robbie Dunn's behaviour within the context of the weighing room. I think it would have been helpful for the PJA to contextualise those words. Now, you know, clearly um, newspapers, particularly the more mainstream um, sports newspapers, are going to go with the, um, the most newsworthy word, and that was rancid. I think on reflection it would have been more um, 
constructive to use one of Brian Barker, the chair of the disability panel's words that he used to, to, to describe the wider culture. I think that would have been a, a, a better word. It still have been hard hitting um, and it might still have caused the same reaction. Who knows? But I think it would have been useful for the PJA to have contextualised that for their members. And so that on Friday, when they were doing their winning interviews at, at Cheltenham and still on Saturday, but particularly on Friday, they weren't left having to feeling raw which was understandable and feeling you know exposed and I think that would have been helpful for individual riders to have had some better leadership and some better contextualization at that point. Um, I would also be interested to know how much the PJA knew in advance about Roderick Moore's case, um, the one that sought to normalize Robbie Dunn's behavior within the context of the weighing room because if they did know about it beforehand did they think through the potential downside of if this case failed and the judicial panel threw that out as an argument and I would suggest to you that and I did just last Friday mm. that 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 argument was always likely to fail did they think about the knock-on impact on everybody else in the weighing room who were potentially going to be dragged under the bus reputationally by pursuing that argument and I'd be interested to know how much in advance the PJ knew about about that that argument um, and also I think um, there's some reflection about their code of conduct, which is it's great that they've brought that forward. And, and so many of the jockeys were, were, were referring, referring to that. And it does ask uh, their members to bring complaints, concerns to them first. But it says that you don't have to, that you can go to other ways. Uh, and I suppose there must be some cause for reflection for the PGA. Um, about whether people are likely to come to them even at first, even though they've brought this admirable code code of conduct forward when you know, they've public come out and asked to have this hearing shut down before it started and they've given this knee-jerk reaction to the outcome of the hearing so I mean I think that should give them some cause for um, reflection but the reflection isn't for them alone the reflection is for the BHA as well because there were clearly as it came up during the course of the inquiry areas of investigation that were lacking and I think <clears throat> I would have welcomed a bit more acknowledgement of that from um, Tim Naylor on, on Luck and Sunday yesterday there were um there were leads that were not followed up. Chris Watts, their former um, um, head in, investigator, head of integrity, um, uh, acknowledged that. You know, that one of those one of those leads on the face of it, we we obviously don't know. Bryony Frost might have welcomed one of those leads. Robbie Dunn might have welcomed. Now, clearly, I, sh I should stress the point that all of this um, information, or the investigation, uh, the uh, the claims about so-called irresponsible riding, uh, the um, the uh, way in which people's evidence has not been put forward and not been listened to, um, all, all of that is white noise or a red herring because all of those arguments were listened to and argued at in front of the panel and they were rejected. But I think this is a separate point that I'm making. I think that there is some cause for reflection for the BHA to make sure that their um, investigative processes are fair and robust um, and they need to they need to to be sure that the population, the entire participatory population of this sport, has confidence in those processes. So I think it would be right for them to also take a look at some of the shortcomings that became apparent during the course of that of that hearing for them as well. Yeah, and of course the link got to be investigated. That's for the the information commissioner's office. I want to go back to um, the, your interview on Sunday with Paul Struthers, in which he was referring to some concerns that the PJA had with the disciplinary panel. And he said that they'd taken legal advice on that. Can you enlighten at all on that? 
Well, not really, to tell you the truth. I mean, Paul was quite opaque there. So whether there's something that we're not aware of yet involving this panel, I, I don't know. But um, it is clear from the, the press release that the PJA feels unhappy with the way these uh, judicial panels are are not criticising the BHA. Uh, and clearly they feel that they're on the wrong end uh, of this for, for reasons that aren't entirely clear. Yes. Um, and I mentioned on Friday that I didn't think that, uh, that didn't chime with my memory of uh, the PJA's attitude to the um, the, appeal, the disciplinary panel, the, the appeals board, the judicial panel, which, you know, is the, uh, which oversees the disciplinary panel and the appeals board. Um, so I've gone back in the PJA's press release releases on the 11th of September last year, and that was um, the press release put out after Ben Curtis his um, COVID protocols um, was the subject of, a, of a, his breaches of the COVID protocols were the subject of a disciplinary panel inquiry. And the PJA stated in, in their press release, we note that we have never had cause to complain about any decision, whether or not we agree with it, since the advent of the current judicial panel under the chairmanship of Brian Barker, CBE QC. That's the 11th of September, 2020. Then on the 28th of May, 2021, Jason Watson, who was appealing against a seven-day ban to fail to take, uh, for failing to take all reasonable and permissible measures at Nottingham, the PJA um, press release on that occasion stated, since August 2020, our success rate has decreased to 50% and we have only won 11% of appeals in full, despite the process and rigour behind identifying appealable cases that he means at the, P uh, the uh, press release means at the PJA remaining the same. We are left to wonder what has changed. Um, I, you know, it's from the outside, what, what one thing that has changed during that time frame, and it's a matter of public record of that, is that the BHA started instructing counsel in that time frame for these scenarios. Previously, they had relied on employee Lynn Williams to bring the BHA's cases, and he was ranged against Solicitor Rory McNeese. Now they've got a comparably tra legally trained defence or advocate for the BHA case, in, in short, there is a quality of arms, whereas previously there hadn't been a quality of arms. So, I mean, mired in all of this, it seems to me, is a lot of politics. And I would urge everybody involved uh, to, to put politics aside in, in, this, in, in this instance, because it has been such a damaging um, episode that I think that would be of benefit to all. Racing Post today, Lydia, has, has led with um, a report of a blog post by uh, Highworth-based trainer Joe Davis, um, recounting a number of experiences that she alleges have happened to her during the course of her time as a, as a trainer and, and previously, mainly involving lewd, inappropriate or misogynistic behaviour. How, how damaging do you think her testimony is? Um, I don't think that any... A uh, woman would find that I uh, find her testimony surprising. Um, clearly, it is a testimony that she wanted to bring forward in the context of things that she has read about. I would imagine in the last two weeks, and that has meant that the things that she has written about are probably high on her mind. I'm sure there are a number of people across the industry, and also more widely, who are reading what has gone on, who has had, who have had a similar reaction they haven't taken to uh, blogging but that's something that that you know joe does um and uh you know i'm sure others have have blogged about it in, in various different different ways um i think it, sh it again the bha struck the tone of 
conciliation after the, the hearing. We discussed this ourselves last Friday. Um, the message, the overarching message from this hearing is not for purely the jockey population. It is for the industry as a whole. It needs to be aware of uh, where it sits within, within modern life and just where it sits within basic acceptable standards. Forget modern life, actually. Uh, just basic acceptable standards. And uh, Jo Davis's um, testimony there via her blog um, lays out some of her um, awful experiences those are the kind of things that should not happen and should not should should be absolutely chased out of any sport. Well, some positive news for the sport this morning, insofar as that the Jockey Club, who own and operate fifteen race courses, including some very prominent ones in the UK, have boosted their prize money for twenty twenty two, and it's set to exceed twenty nineteen pre pandemic levels and set to exceed fifty eight million pounds. The Jockey Club's chief executive Nevin Truesdale joins me now. Nevin, after this pandemic period and a, a drop in profits, the obvious question is, how have you managed to do this? Yeah, good morning, Nick. Well, we're very obviously very pleased to be announcing what, you, what you've just said today. We're um, 2022 prize money at Jockey Club courses um, going above 58 million for the first time, and that's 5 million more than what we saw against the previous high water mark in 2019. Um, works out at about 172,000 a, a fixture. Um, I mean, there's a number of reasons why we've been able to get to this position. Obviously, a huge amount of hard work from our from our own people, um, but massive support we've had from trainers, from owners, from jockeys, from all participants right through um, the, the lockdown period and, and the strong numbers we've seen from um, spectators um, and, the, and the paying customers since the end of lockdown as well. So it's put us probably in a stronger financial position than we would have thought and um, we've, we've, what, what that's meant is we've been able to put 28.4 million in from our own resources, and that's also higher than it's ever been. Um, that, that's a new record as well. And obviously, you've got to look at the industry funding element of this as well. Let's not forget that. You know, we've had fantastic support from, from the levy, um, from, the, from the entry stakes. So there's, there's a combination of factors that have got us here. Um, and, uh, and an improving financial picture. But I think we're also urging a little bit of caution. You know, we're not out of this, uh, the impacts of this pandemic yet. But I think it, what, what we have done is show a lot of confidence in, in the spectator numbers and in, and, in, and in the trends that we're seeing and a lot of confidence in people's interest. And, and that's fantastic news for the sport. Um, how do you now plan uh, for what might happen? With the pandemic, with the you know the latest announcement from the prime minister last night, and potential for Plan C, D, E, and goodness knows what else. How as a racecourse group, and you've put this prize money commitment in place, how do you plan for this? Yeah, I mean we've had to obviously plan for a whole range of different scenarios, as you can probably imagine. The last eighteen months, two years, it's been very hard to do any sort of sort of firm scenario planning. And as, as you say, we don't really know what's coming next. I, I felt there was certain implicit messages in the Prime Minister's announcement last night that there could be more restrictions on the way. So we, we've had to plan accordingly, and we do have contingency around that within these numbers. But equally, um, you know, if, 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 the, if the impacts become material, then we'll obviously have to look at the whole thing again. But so you have to be ready and you have to be agile in planning for a number of different scenarios, understand what your contingencies are, understanding what your upsides are. And actually, it's given us a really strong understanding of, of, of the trends and, the, and the, the, the impacts across the whole business of what this um, pandemic can do to us. So we've got we've certainly got one eye, if not one and a half eyes, fixed very much on you know, a range of different scenarios, depending on what, what, what plan B, plan C might, might mean for us. 
but um, we're, we're very, as I said, we're very, very confident that you know what we've got at the minute and the numbers we're seeing give us give us a bit of ballast to be able to make an announcement like this at this point. Nevin, last time we spoke on this podcast was in the midst of this philosophical debate surrounding Ark's intention to give more prize money in return for getting extra races on their race cars, and you said at the time you didn't feel it was necessary to do that. Have you? changed your position particularly in light of this announcement or is it roughly the same yeah i'd say if anything it's um it's strengthened since then on that front i mean you you never you can never you never rule out a range of possibilities in this sport we've got to work together to work out what is what is going to give the best commercial outcomes for the sport but i think i think we at the jog club firmly believe that you know the more the more commercially successful we are as a business the more we can guarantee to put into things like prize money and facilities investments um, and that's really what we're about that does not necessarily mean and that probably doesn't need to mean more race volume what it does mean is being is is, is having a, a race program and a race volume that generates you know greater runners more competitive racing more frankly excitement than we even we've got at the minute so you get more people engaging with it you get more people betting on it responsibly obviously and you get to a position where we you know we start to realize even more commercial upside from what we have got by, by working just more effectively even more effectively together than we do that doesn't necessarily mean more volume that could mean a program that's you know needs tweaking in terms of its its congruence with the horse population but, it, but, but we don't necessarily need more volume per se just to be able to generate more prize money you touched upon responsible gambling there which which leads us on really to to the other major question of the day in terms of how the sports funding might be effective what is your strategy what's the jockey club's strategy in terms of lobbying government and working with the betting industry in order to ensure that ratings revenue streams remain strong while showing a commitment to to responsible gambling particularly in light of what's going to happen with the gambling review and the the new minister in charge chris philp um looking looking rather different to his predecessor john whittingdale yeah absolutely i mean this is this is front and center of our thinking at the minute we've had a number of conversations both, both with the betting operators directly and with the betting and gaming council and all of this about how we can work effectively together i think i think we showed back in sort of january february when, when we mobilized a, a brilliant industry-wide campaign betting and racing against some of the more um draconian measures that were being suggested around affordability checks at that point that we you know we can work effectively on this clearly responsible gambling is something that we all 100 percent support and we 100 percent support the government taking Good proportionate measures against the areas which are the which where where, it's where where we have where we see these impacts on people's lives that that cannot be ignored, but it's it is a fact that only three percent of people betting on racing are problem gamblers, and I thought I thought Bruce Millington spoke very well in your program on this subject yesterday, making that distinction between you know a game of a game of chance, which is where the real issues lie, and a game of skill, which is what betting on, on, on sport in general is so it's really important and that we engage as the joint club and with the bha and others in the industry with betting with the bgc to persuade government that the the, the measures that they put in the white paper have to be have to be proportionate and the minister made some encouraging comments um in this respect in a speech last week so we're continuing to work on that and that that is one of but that is definitely one of the the longer term headwinds that we would see in something that is an industry and along with our betting partners that we need to continue to address. Uh, Nevin Truesdale, the chief executive of the Jockey Club. Lydia, that's a, it's prize money is the top line, but there's a, a little bit more in there. There is. Let's start with the prize money, shall we? I mean, it's obviously, it's really, really welcome news to uh, be going back to, um, to exceed 
existing pre-pandemic levels. I mean, it's obviously it's right to compare it with 2019 levels rather than, rather than 2020 or 2021. And that is, you know, extremely good news. So if we think back to the uh, Guinness meeting of last year, and uh, aside from uh, the main the main races, the undercard being really sparse, and there just wasn't enough uh, prize money in those races to attract the, the level of horses that those races were framed for. And I'm 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 taking from this that that is a recognition um, that, that that races need to be worth what they should be worth. Um, my hope, though, of course, is I'm the chair of the patent committee, so I'm clearly thinking about. Um, Britain retaining it, it's certainly its European re re relevance. If we you know, struggle to 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 compare ourselves with the mega bucks that are available in certain races in certain countries elsewhere, but we need to remain remain our best races need to remain relevant on a European basis. So um, I would like to know what you know. For example, I mentioned the Guinness meeting. I'd like to know what the two what how the two thousand one thousand Guinness are holding up. Um, you know, I, I know um, that uh, France ha have um, announced uh, more prize money. I mean, the Poulain is worth um, 600,000 euros. The Poulish is worth uh, 500,000 um, euros. I, I don't know what Ireland are, I would think, more than likely to announce increases. What I am hoping is that the increases, that the, that, that the, the nitty gritty of this um, show that our very best races, our banner races like the Guineas, are keeping pace uh, at least keeping pace with those kind of races. Um, and I think if they're not, then that needs to be a very pressing ambition. Uh, Nevin Truesdale last time on the pod, Lydia, was gentle enough in his, in his suggestion that it didn't all have to be about, you know, pilot high to get, to get more, more money. Uh, he, he firmed his position up a little bit, I thought. Yes, he had, and I welcome it. Um, I do think that we need to focus, the horse racing industry needs to focus on sustainability. And I, I felt, although he didn't use that word, that what he was describing there was a shift in focus towards sustainability. And I really welcome the idea that you didn't need to have more race volume and that the focus should be towards greater runners, bigger fields, more excitement, more engagement. I very much, hugely welcome that. Uh, the concern is real amongst all racing stakeholders about affordability checks, about Chris Philps' tenure as the minister responsible for, for gambling. You, you can sense the jitters and the jitters are real. Yeah, they've finally woken up to it, is what, what I would say. Um, I think that they, um, I don't like this sort of pocketing away of people who are, inverted commas, problem gamblers. You know, I, I just don't like that phrase. I think it's a it's a betting industry phrase. It, it suggests that those people are other. Um, things like this can happen to, to anyone when they're vulnerable at any, any time. And, you know, it, it also shifts the responsibility onto them rather than onto the people supplying the product. And so I think that um, rather than just wholly always align, aligning itself with the betting industry, I think the racing industry should be asking harder questions of the betting industry in this area. Um, and uh, it, it's taken them a while to wake up to, to the real threat of this, but now they need to take um, focus on it more greatly and they need to be more sceptical as well about what they're being told. And looking further afield now to Hong Kong, where we can reflect on the Hong Kong International Race Day. A brilliant performance by Golden 60 to take the mile. That really was the, the headline act. Very creditable runs in defeat from the likes of Mother Earth and also in the Hong Kong Cup from Dubai Honor, who was a little unlucky not to finish closer than he did for trainer William Haggis and jockey Tom Marquand. Uh, but the 
signature European performance came from Pile Driver, trained by William Muir and Chris Grassick and ridden by Martin Dwyer. He finished a very honourable second in the Vars, just overhauled late on. I've been speaking to, to William Muir, uh, and in a moment he tells me why he favours the, the Saudi Cup as a possible target, even though it's on the, on the dirt. Um, but first of all, he explains how he was feeling through those last couple of hundred yards. Yeah, of course, you were. I mean, my feelings changed because turning in and he took it up, I thought, yeah, we're going to win. I, my first feeling turning in, I thought the French filly was travelling the best. And then I seen her come off the bridle and I thought, no, we've got this. And then all of a sudden, Glory was made. And then the last final stages, from where we were positioned, it was difficult to see TV or anything. But where we were positioned, he just come over the top of us and got us online. And of course, you're first to meet us. Shoot, we thought we had it, and then you've got to be immensely proud. I mean, the horse has gone over his first ever travel. He's never been out. Of, he's never been out of the UK. He's never been to Ireland, France, anywhere. He's only raced in the UK. He's never been away overnight. He's gone away. He's travelled on an airplane. He's got there. He's took everything in his stride, and it was a massive performance. That was a huge performance. Um, just, just try and detail to me exactly how difficult that that period after the Coronation Cup was and, and, and how frustrated you and your team were that you couldn't get him out on the track? It was frustrating more than difficult because he wasn't injured. So it was frustrating when you have to listen to the people that have, that are your vets and everybody that goes with it. And my vet is very, very good. And he just said, you cannot gallop yet. And so it was frustrating because, yes, he was a sound horse, but if we'd have took no notice and done stupid things, he would have been no. You'd never seen him again. So we just took the view, pack him up, let him have a holiday, let him have a complete break, and come back for these races through the winter. And um, it's paid off because even finishing second, the prize money was colossal. He's won more than he's won in any of his races put together. All the prize money he's won up to now, he's beat that yesterday. Yeah, £415,486 he, he netted for finishing second, which is which is pretty amazing. Has it made you think now differently about the way you're going to campaign him moving forward? I think we've always been going to campaign him for these races because um, the owners have been very, very um, brave in saying no to all offers. We still had offers coming in, even of late, and they just say, no, we're keeping him. We're keeping him if he can if he can fund our our um, racing with our others and he can pay for it. What does it matter? What did he cost us? He cost us a nomination to um, Harbour Watch, which at that time wasn't overly expensive. So I know it's big money, but he he can fund their racing and they're loving it. And yes, it's a shame that they haven't been able to go there, but we did plan out that this was going to be our target to try and bang let's go and try and get a win or place in this race because it's big money and then we were going to go um saudi and then the shima classic and although you you'd have the option of that sort of distance turf race for him in in saudi i, I get the sense that you want to go for the the big one the the 20 million dollar uh, saudi cup what's the what's the thinking there apart from the obvious well uh, interesting thing ted Vau, who a lot of respect for Ted, said to me, it's the best dirt surface that he's ever been on because it's, it's mixed with shavings. And he said it is just very, very kind on horses. He said, you would love it. And Ted told me that at the sales through the winter. 
Well, that that would be a. a, a, a they, they'll never need to worry about what offers they turn down then. That's for sure. No, exactly, exactly. But this horse could go on and do. He could go back to Hong Kong next year. He can continue this for another two years. Wherever he goes, William, he's done you proud. And uh, thanks so much for keeping us updated. Not at all. And he's great after it. He's t- he took the race fantastic. I mean, we were only... Th- we, we left it. I left the yard about 7 o'clock last night, the quarantine yard. And um, and he was um, he was brilliant. Tried up really well, done everything. And I've seen him on video trying up this morning, so he's in great shape after it. William, you're there. And as we talk about financing racing all over the world and it's worth just noting the pari mutual turnover figures i've had to sort of check that the dots are in the right place or the commas are in the right place i i, I read this as 1.7 billion dollars this year and a total turnover of 1.728 billion if you're meaning billion to mean a thousand million rather than a million million which i think we do in sort of international parlance but um, I just can't get my head around it, Lydia, to be honest. No, I know. It's extraordinary, isn't it? And, you know, you, you need to contextualise this as well against, you know, different nations, you know, um, where that, you know, sits in terms of, uh, is that is that a record? Where Where is it? You know, it's it's so hard to get your head around from, from Britain. I mean, and clearly, you know, the key difference is that they have a pari mutuel and that, that has uh, enabled all them profits, you know, focus back in into racing and that is is the outcome but uh, i mean you know we're, we're talking about a uh, winding back of legislation here and you know legisla- legislation of many decades and let's not go down that wormhole i don't think we have enough time <laughs> no we definitely don't we do have time however to discuss the um classiest horse that arguably that was running over the weekend at cheltenham who i i think is my drogo Yes, I think that's that's right. He's a he's a good looking horse. Um, there were a few <gasps> moments um, when he stood off a, a couple of fences and uh, and sort of crashed through them essentially. Um, but Dan Skelton was saying afterwards that that's the kind of horse he is. You know, when you ask him to go, he goes, and he he he's glad that the horse isn't in two minds. And the the whole thing just needs tweaking and 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 fine tuning. And you know, he's a novice, and that's what novice races are for. Uh, the welcoming. Um, Point was that he will be heading towards the Dipper um, at Cheltenham in the new year, and uh, then he will probably be running again before heading towards the Turner's Novice Chase, which is the former Marsh, former JLT. I wish I wish these would stay the same. Um, at the two and a half mile of the first race on the, on the Thursday on the new course, um, that is his target because he thinks that over two miles um, there'll be too much um, pressure on on the on the jumping at this stage in his career and over three miles that they'd always be taking a very exuberant horse back. Do you have anything for me for today, this quiet Monday afternoon? It's very quiet, isn't it? Um, A horse that I've been following for a while, I quite like in particular circumstances, and I think she's got them today, and that is in 3.45 at Chelmsford, Atalanta Breeze. First time blinkers, I think that's a positive, um, and I think she can win for Dougie Costello and Marcus Dragoni. Lydia, thanks so much. Thank you for listening. That was Monday, December the 13th. We'll see you again tomorrow. Bye-bye. You've been listening to Nick Luck Daily, brought to you in association with Fitzdares, the Racehorse Owners Association, and Thoroughbred Racing Commentary. Mm-hmm.